the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Surf to Lead podcast. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by taking just a moment and giving us a high rating on your podcast provider. This podcast is supported by listeners. Please consider joining me at Substack, where you'll also have access to frequent posts on current and historical events. Today, we have a very special guest in the house, the presidential historian Richard Norton Smith. You may well, you may well recognize him from C-SPAN, where he's an omnipresent, beloved contributor or from his longtime participation in the PBS NewsHour, or as a CBS presidential commentator, or many more. Richard Norton Smith is a prolific writer and author. His first book on the 20th century leader and presidential candidate Thomas E. Dewey was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. He's also written highly acclaimed biographies of George Washington, Colonel Robert McCormick, and Nelson Rockefeller. He's architected and led presidential libraries and museums from Lincoln to Reagan, from Hoover to Ford, and now he's written a highly and widely acclaimed authoritative biography of President Gerald Ford called Ordinary Man, The Surprising Life and Historic Presidency of Gerald R. Ford. Richard Norton Smith, welcome back to the Serve to Lead podcast. Thank you very much. Richard Smith, you write... In popular memory, President Ford is wedged between three Shakespearean predecessors, the idealized JFK, the tormented LBJ, the self-destructive Nixon, and the transformative figure of Ronald Reagan. How do you think about President Ford from this remove, and what do you want all of us, both those who can recall him and those to whom he's new, to think about? Well, actually, you're absolutely right to... uh add those for whom he is new because a very large part of your audience, I'm sure a very large part of our population was not alive when Gerald Ford was uh, uh, in the white house or, or part of the extraordinary cacophony of events uh, that uh, led him there in some ways, the most improbable of American presidents. The title uh, is not chosen by accident, um, you name those those presidents, those melodramatic, uh, history-altering figures um, who are vivid in our recollections: uh, JFK, LBJ, Richard Nixon, and Ronald Reagan. And and in the midst of them, almost as a historical accident, is Gerald Ford, who who seems like the most ordinary of men. It is it is revealing that in his first hour as president, he defined himself by the presidential portraits that he hung in the cabinet room. He removed Richard Nixon's uh, progressive era favorites, Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, uh, an interesting uh, pairing in itself. He left Dwight Eisenhower in the place of honor, but he added Abraham Lincoln and then Harry Truman. Uh, a figure who surprised a lot of folks. Uh, but even then, I think Ford identified with Truman. He was the first president he knew as a young congressman. 
Um, he he shared with Ford a kind of Midwestern anti-charisma, if you will, uh, plain spoken, um, honest to a fault, uh, and also, and this is something easily overlooked, someone who said later on that the years he spent on Capitol Hill were the happiest in his life. Um, both Ford and Truman were creatures of Congress in many ways. The challenge they confronted, among other things, was how to learn to be an executive because the role of the president, presidential persuasion, for example, presidential agenda setting uh, is completely different from, from those functions as performed on Capitol Hill. Um, and also, however, each man knew <laughs> government from the inside out. Each man knew what buttons to push to get what they wanted. And th those are unglamorous traits. Finally, each man shared something else, which attested to his knowledge of government. Harry, before, before Gerald Ford did it in 1976, the last American president to personally introduce the federal budget. And by that, I mean to get up in front of a room full of reporters and answer questions until there were no more questions uh, because he knew it. He knew it backwards and forwards was Harry Truman. And, and interesting at the beginning of 1976, confronting Ronald Reagan's uh, powerful challenge from the right, the, the people around Ford were looking for some way uh, among other things, to, to be blunt, to refute the notion that he wasn't up to the presidency, frankly, that he wasn't smart enough, knowledgeable enough to be president. Uh, he got up and uh, answered 56 questions in 90 minutes uh, without any assistance, um, uh, spoke knowledgeably, convincingly, the language with which he was comfortable which was different, quite frankly, from the language we expect to hear uh, from, from the Kennedys and the Reagans. So the, the Ford presidency is, is fascinating on many levels. Until now, most people have, have concentrated on how he became president, and that's dramatic enough. And by contrast with that, the presidency itself seems rather prosaic. Um, and what I discovered was First of all, there's no shortage of drama or historical significance in those two and a half years that he was in the White House. But even more important, maybe the ultimate message of this book is we should always be reluctant to pass judgment on presidents while still in office, or I would argue even for some time after they leave office. Ford went to his grave believing his historical legacy would be his efforts, wisely successful, to restore at least some measure of public trust in the presidency, which had been shattered not only by Watergate, but by Vietnam and the credibility gap born under Lyndon Johnson. Um, almost 50 years on, we realized that Ford did much more than clean up the messes whether it was Watergate or Vietnam or a rogue CIA that he inherited. He's much more of an initiator. Um, two quick examples, economic deregulation, which became bipartisan when the Carter and then the Reagan administrations accepted it 
Well, it was under Ford that it started. Um, he deregulated the railroads. He deregulated the financial services industry. And that gets back to what I said earlier about people too young to remember. Try to sit, try to convince, try to explain to a member of Generation X that there was a time not so long ago when bureaucrats in Washington decided where planes flew and what truckers could carry and where you could get a home mortgage. Um, all of that began to change dramatically under Ford. And then finally, in foreign policy, if you look at the Helsinki Accords signed in the summer of 75, classic example, bitterly criticized from both the right and the left at the time as a major concession to the Soviet Union in terms of legitimizing their empire in Eastern Europe. We now know that, in fact, the Helsinki Accords ceded dissent movements in Poland and Czechoslovakia and the Soviet Union itself, and in fact, um, can be seen as a real milestone on the road to the to the eventual collapse of the Soviet Union. So, it, you know, the story is surprising in many ways. Um, it's relevant in surprising ways, but above all, I think it, um, it it's cautionary in the dangers of assuming or jumping to conclusions about uh, presidents or, for that matter, uh, public figures generally. One of the echoes that I think particularly younger readers, but not solely younger readers, will observe is that just as today, 50 years ago at that time, the nation was divided, it was dispirited, it was exhausted, there was talk of decline in the air. We were, of course, in a Cold War, in that case with Russia. We were in proxy wars as well with Russia. And you look around today, whether it's Afghanistan, the withdrawal, there are so many echoes. How do you no, think about that? And how should we think about it and learn from President Ford? <laughs> well, you know, it, it, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, and of course, the, the most, in some ways, painful parallel uh, is the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which I think even supporters of the of the administration, the current administration, uh, will argue or will concede was was badly handled. Well, you know, almost 50 years ago now, there are images that are indelible for a certain generation of helicopters taking off from the roof of the American embassy in Saigon. Um, symbolic of the final humiliation. Um, uh, Ford himself said the worst day of his presidency was to sit in the Oval Office and see the United States, in effect, kicked out of Southeast Asia after uh, 25 years of, uh, of blood and treasure and futility. And um, the interesting thing is the story has almost never been told from Ford's perspective. He's usually kind of a, almost a, an observer on the sidelines. Um, it's the sequel to that extraordinary last 24 hours. You know, first of all, nobody ever intended there to be a helicopter. Uh, hmm. It was all supposed to be done by fixed wing airplane from Tansanu airport. And at the last minute, the least attractive option was adopted because the airport was under fire from the advancing uh, North Vietnamese troops. The uh, the airlift, such as it was, was supposed to be over in three hours while it lasted 18. 
Um, and but but then it's the sequel, because understandably, politicians and, you know, in many ways, speaking for the American people who were beyond war weary, they just wanted to put it behind us. And the practical fact of that was they, in effect, wanted to pull up the ladder, uh, even the ladder that had been on the roof or top of the American embassy, and which today, by the way, can be seen in the Ford Museum here in Grand Rapids. Um, they had no interest in funding um, any kind of mass influx of, of refugees. Um, they, they just, frankly, they wanted to slam the door. And there's this marvelous story. Ron Nesson, who was the press secretary, said it's the only time he heard Ford swear um, when he brought the news that Congress had basically gone back on its original funding and wanted to pull the plug. And Ford did something for which he has really recognized or credited, but which eventually every president finds himself called upon to do. And that is he, he mounted Teddy Roosevelt's famed bully pulpit not a place with which he was ordinarily comfortable. And he put together this crazy quilt coalition, despite the divisions that wrecked this country and um, the feelings of, um, of humiliation, uh, frankly, that, that a lot of Americans felt. Um, there was the American Jewish Congress. Uh, Pope Paul weighed in. Uh, Protestant churches, Democratic governors, I mean, you name it. And basically, he shamed the Congress into appropriating uh, several hundred million dollars, which brought out the first wave of about 130,000 Vietnamese refugees. Now, there would be later uh, waves, uh, and that number grew significantly. But, but the fact of the matter is, Ford made it very clear, and he was very public about this. You know, we have always been a country of asylum. For, for for those who were politically oppressed, we did it. Uh, we did it for the Hungarians after the failed revolution of 1956. God knows we did it for the Cubans uh, throughout throughout the 60s and beyond. And as he said, by God, you know, we're going to do it for the Vietnamese. And uh, I mean, he felt. Um, but, but you know, it's interesting. And what is unique? There's so much of it is unique about the Ford presidency. He's the only president in modern times who didn't spend his life aspiring to be president. One, uh, he never ran for the office. He had no campaign. He had no interregnum in which to plan or to craft a program. I mean, those were disadvantages. But on the other hand, he also had no promises to individuals or groups. Um, and because he really initially did not see himself as a candidate for a full term in 76, he took office with a freedom that is really almost unique. And you saw that um, over and over again. He was willing to do what was unpopular in the short term. Classic example is the Vietnamese uh, resettlement program. I guarantee you it didn't get him any points in the polls. Um, but he, you know, he said, I, I could not have swept with myself. My conscience would not have been clear if we hadn't done that. W one other example, great example, and it's, again, it's, it's the foundation for so much that has happened and is still happening today. And, and the timing is was so, so revealing. Weeks before the Texas, Ronald Reagan is, um, is, is 
on, on the verge of winning a big primary in Texas, the first of several that he will win as he builds momentum in his campaign against Ford. And at this time of all times, Ford decides to send Henry Kissinger to Africa with a 180 degree shift in U.S. foreign policy. Basically, Ford has decided that we are no longer going to support white minority governments like in the old Rhodesia, uh, but we are going to send an, an unmistakable message to Africa, to black Africa, that uh, in effect, there's a new sheriff in town. And the message will not be lost on South Africa that the days of apartheid are numbered. And there are lots of people around Ford who said, look, I understand why you want to do it, but you don't want to do it now, not now of all times. Uh, and Ford, who could be very stubborn, he was stubborn in deciding to pardon Richard Nixon when he did, because you can make a very strong case that even if you think the pardon was necessary and justified, um, it, it should have been, he should have waited until after the midterm elections. Well, if he was thinking of his political future, um, he would have delayed or even canceled Kissinger's very visible trip to Africa, but he thought it was the right thing to do. Um, Kissinger went ahead um, and um, it really marked the turning. It was the most dramatic shift is understates, most dramatic about face in American foreign policy since Richard Nixon went to China. And it's an area where it might be observed that the soon to arrive successors, Ronald Reagan, and uh, certainly Margaret Thatcher did not follow that path that Ford and Carter had laid out in Africa. You know, it's true. But, but, but in other ways, it's interesting. In, in the first six months of Ford's presidency, uh, this neophyte president with, frankly, very limited political capital and a lot less since he pardoned Richard Nixon, gets in a plane and he goes to Vladivostok to negotiate an arms treaty, arms control treaty with Leonid Brezhnev. Um, and they, what they worked out was a framework and he couldn't get it finalized. Um, and the Carter administration came in and said, we're basically going to junk it and start over only to discover, <laughs> interestingly, that the Soviets weren't interested in junking it and starting over. And they, they screwed back and basically they adopted um, and enacted uh, formalized the framework that Ford and Brezhnev. And, and the really interesting thing is they couldn't get Senate to approve it. But the Reagan administration, hard line as it was, uh, chose to, 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 live, to live with it. And then, of course, eventually uh, Reagan cemented his place in the history books by uh, eliminating an entire class of, of nuclear weapons. But it, again, it all has its um, the seeds were planted uh, during Ford's presidency. And that's one of the many lessons in this fascinating book, Ordinary Man, about President Ford to this reader. And that is that in American politics, certainly in our time, there's this effort for every president to sort of begin at year zero and Absolutely. act as though they're immaculate <laughs> births. And they, they very consciously throw out all these things of their predecessors. But when you stand back, either historically or just from looking at other countries, as they look at us, one realizes there's a tremendous, as there should be, a tremendous amount of continuity. And President Ford is a part of that. 
Uh, no, a- absolutely. Uh, the uh, and of course, what the, the phenomenon you speak of is is enormously um, encouraged by the media, you know, for whom this is increasingly entertainment. This yeah. is a this is a show. The presidency. It's it's a story being uh, told largely by and through the media uh, in various formats, traditional and untraditional media. Uh, and you need a, a closing date uh, and an opening. And um, and, and the, the consequence is it does feed this exaggerated notion of uh, of starting over. The, the, one more reason, in fact, but that actually leads to, again, the caution, the cautionary note uh, about ranking presidents, deciding, you know, what their historical legacy is. One really good reason why it, it can't be done, in my opinion, shouldn't be done uh, for some time is precisely the fact that successive presidents will find themselves dealing with the same issues, whether it's the economy, whether it's the Middle East, whether it's relations with the Soviet Union slash Russia. Um, I mean, you name it. The continuity of which you speak is, is applicable in domestic and foreign policy. And one reason why presidents tend to look better with the past, Dwight Eisenhower and Harry Truman, two men, very different, opposite ends of the partisan spectrum, and yet both have um, posthumously, uh, if you will, with the passage of time, uh, come to be seen um, in an ever more favorable light. Um, frankly, it's because their style of leadership, for all of its differences, um, looks a lot better than what we are seeing day after day after day. And it doesn't matter who's in the White House. But, yes. but Ford, in some ways, even more dramatically, because you know, you look, you go back and you look at the you look at the coverage of Ford. I mean, he was ridiculed. There was a famous cartoon, and the, the front cover of New York Magazine had him as Bozo the Clown. Um, Saturday Night Live famously cut its teeth uh, on 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 lampooning uh, Ford's intelligence and his uh, his lack of communication skills, if you will, uh, and all of that contributed. Uh, to the perception of the time that this was a, a nice guy, a good guy, an honorable man of integrity, et cetera, et cetera. But is he really up to this job? Well, you know, as I say, 30, 40, even 50 years after the fact, um, for one thing, papers become available, partisan passions cool. But most of all, we get to compare President A against President E or F or G. And guess what? Um, they, they tend to look better than they did at the time. One of the many striking things about this highly readable book, An Ordinary Man, about Gerald R. Ford, is that he may appear ordinary, perhaps, or the word normal, against these titanic public personalities who were in or around the presidency and on the public stage for their whole public life, like John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, later Ronald Reagan. But my God, the accomplishments of Gerald Ford in various yeah. areas, the greatest athlete and uh, you know, model, yeah. this guy was well, like, as you well, say, like the Zelig uh, in Woody Allen. He shows up everywhere. Yeah. He is ever. It's true. I mean, OK, he gets into politics as an insurgent, anti-Republican machine in Grand Rapids and in Michigan more generally. 
He he runs for all. He's oh, by the way, in 1940, he's one of a quartet of Yale Law School students who charter a group called America First, which, by the way, is very different from the term today. It was uh, a very uh, 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 young John Kennedy supported it. Young Gore Vidal supported it. Uh, Walt Disney and Frank Lloyd Wright. Basically, there was a whole generation of Americans who were disillusioned by World War One and the promises that were made and not kept, and the fact that Europe seemed to be on the verge of repeating this murderous uh, carnage all over again. And not surprisingly, um, young people, in particular college people, uh, didn't want to have history repeat itself. Um, and but anyway, uh, one of the things I discovered was. Ford applied to be an FBI agent about this time, uh, having graduated from Yale Law School. And he was his application was personally blackballed by J. Edgar Hoover, who found out about Ford's involvement with America First, even though Ford had resigned from the group uh, about the time he went to Philadelphia to stand in the convention shouting, we want Wilkie, we want Wilkie, uh, making history, the amount of history that Ford made. Arthur Vandenberg was his personal and political hero and friend from Grand Rapids and political mentor. Um, he, he runs against an entrenched isolationist, mossback Republican congressman. The odds are three to one against him. He beats the guy in the primary, uh, is elected in 1948, one of the few Republicans that year uh, to, to win office. Um, within, within five years, has been tasked by the old bowls in, in, in Congress to be part of the five-member super-secret committee that oversees the CIA in closed-door meetings with no staff and no note-taking. And he was there because they decided this is a workhorse, not a show horse. This is the guy we can trust with the most sensitive information. And guess what? Ten years later, history repeats itself when he's asked to be on the Warren Commission for, for many of the same reasons. Um, and all of that before most Americans had ever heard his name. He, again, the insurgent 40 takes on the incumbent House Republican leader following the Goldwater debacle, uh, narrowly defeats him and turns the Republican minority from being stridently uh, oppositionist, if there is such a word, to becoming a fount of new programmatic ideas you know, trying to compete with the great society with Republican proposals for education and welfare and the environment creates the first think tank uh, to assist Republicans on Capitol Hill uh, to generate new programming ideas. And then, so guess what? By the time he finds out, by the way, six months earlier than he ever acknowledged publicly, that Spiro Agnew, Vice President Agnew, is in serious legal trouble and may not survive, um, Ford quietly lets it be known to his Democratic counterparts that he's interested in replacing him. And he does, because Richard Nixon can't, his first choice is John Connolly. John Connolly cannot be confirmed. The one person that the Democrats say they will confirm is Gerald Ford. And um, with that, you know, we're, we're off to the races. One tiny incident as vice president. Again, people think of Ford as a kind of compliant, um, you know, extension of Richard Nixon. 
the book makes it very clear that he was not. And even as vice president, it's really remarkable. If you follow during that brief eight months, the tightrope walk that Ford was doing, uh, trying to defend the president, while at the same time maintaining his own integrity against the day that he couldn't admit even to himself that he just might become president. Um, there's a wonderful illustration. A month before he becomes president, Earl Warren dies, the former chief justice who, by the way, he had a rather stormy relationship with on the Warren Commission. Uh, and, a, and a friend who told me the story uh, was mentioning, you know, it would be nice for you to to go up and to the Supreme Court and pay your respects. And uh, Ford didn't say anything characteristically, um, but in fact, he went to the court, uh, placed a wreath in front of the chief justice's beer, knowing it would piss off Richard Nixon. And it did. Um, and through, through small acts like that, um, he maintained his credibility. And that's the important thing to remember about his vice presidency. Uh, he, he, he never alienated Nixon loyalists, but he was accepted on August 9th, 1974, as a legitimate uh, and indeed an independent successor to the discredited Richard Nixon. 50 years later, history is echoing in one of the many ways from the Ford period with the questions about domestic and international intelligence, law enforcement, and so yeah. on. What yeah. lessons do you see from that era? And one almost wonders, of course, Jager Hoover had begun the FBI uh, about yeah. 50 years before that, and it just expanded through World War II and the OSS and so on. Now here we are yet again 50 years later. What would lessons be from President Ford's helping us through that? Well, it's interesting. I'll never forget our mutual friend, Jim Cannon, who wrote a wonderful book about Gerald Ford, focusing on uh, the events around Watergate and the uh, and his becoming president. Um, but I remember he, he said flat out that Ford saved the CIA. Now, the interesting thing is this. Again, this is a classic Ford approach to government. Um, generally, Ford leadership. Um, he, he accepted the fact that there had been abuses. People tend to forget, but the original CIA investigation was, was supposed to focus on abuses of its charter in the domestic sphere. Um, that is to say, and, and there had been, uh, frankly, they began under Lyndon Johnson, who was paranoid about the possibility uh, of foreign financial support for the anti-Vietnam War movement. And so there was mail opening, there were there was surveillance done, some of it included unfriendly reporters, um, but it, it began under LBJ um, and it continued under Nixon. Um, well, by the time it was revealed um, in the New York Times in December of 74, the fact is that the basic program under Bill Colby had, had been shut down, the abuses were history, but but that didn't matter because again, in that profoundly distrustful, cynical, understandably, you know, kind of Watergate era, uh, people and above all the media believed the worst uh, of of government, and there was reason, uh, frankly, the CIA had been abusive. 
Kissinger, who was frantically trying to kill any investigation, um, his great fear was that this would spill over into the the foreign. I mean, in other words, what the CIA was supposed to be doing um, in terms of foreign intelligence and and the like. And and that, of course, there were uh, even more abuses. And people like Frank Church um, and other would-be presidents, thinking about 76, they saw the political consequences. So Ford had on his hands this very complex, very messy, politically thankless series of, of challenges. Um, the domestic abuses in the CIA, uh, the foreign abuses in the CIA, and the political the politicalization, uh, if for lack of a better word, um, by critics of the agency, uh, much of it, you know, based in partisan political ambition. And from the beginning, his strategy was um, to acknowledge the abuses, um, to have an authentic, credible investigation led by a commission, uh, a bipartisan commission led by Vice President Rockefeller, uh, to cooperate with Congress uh, to the maximum extent possible, uh, more certainly more than Henry Kissinger would have liked to have seen done. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, he was determined to reform the agency, uh, but also preserve it, because he thought that the covert action was 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 a tool that the United States absolutely could not uh, do away with. Uh, he feared that too much would be revealed by people like Bill Colby, the then director of the CIA. So there was that tension within the administration. It was a really, really, and for me, I, I will tell you candidly, it was the hardest part of the book for me to write because there are so many balls in the air and so many rings in this circus and so many nuances. And the very fact that, that it is incredibly relevant um, actually complicated it still further uh, because you, you want to tell the story as faithfully as possible to the context within which it occurred uh, and not even subconsciously sort of slant it toward toward a more contemporary uh, interpretation. In any event, uh, in the end, the agency was reformed. Uh, there were restrictions, and not only the agency, by the way, uh, we haven't talked about Ed Levy, the attorney general, against whom all others are measured. Um, the president of the University of Chicago that Ford personally talked into leaving that prestigious post and taking a Justice Department that, quite frankly, needed to be fumigated um, after the scandals and the uh, the turnover, four or five uh, attorney generals in, in recent years. Well, it was Ed Levy, uh, the civil libertarian, who basically wrote a new charter uh, for the FBI, restricting its use of wiretapping and, and other tools of, of surveillance. Um, in any event, all of this is going on at the same time. Very little of it has ever been exposed or explained or put into context. And I was very mindful of the fact that I wasn't just telling, it wasn't, it's not just a biography. This is unavoidably a history. Um, one tiny thing, um, but it's so utterly revealing of, of Ford. And it's something that, again, 
nobody really recognizes or gives him credit for. He he read the Rockefeller Report, and the the thing that and he was sophisticated. Remember, he had been on the Oversight Committee. He he knew a lot of his stuff. But what absolutely appalled him, what he didn't know, was about experiments conducted using LSD on unsuspecting individuals, uh, one of whom had jumped to his death uh, from a high story in a New York hotel and whose family had never been told the truth of what had happened and consequently received a, a real pittance in terms of, of compensation from the government. Ford reopened that case. He invited the family to the Oval Office where he apologized on behalf of the country and promised their lawyers a complete cooperation and eventually uh, personally saw to it that a much more generous compensation package was adopted by Congress. I mean, he used his old contacts on the Hill to, to get this done that probably nobody else could. I mean, that is, in the, in the best sense of the word, that's how congressmen operate. And Ford is unique among um, other things for being a congressman who, he brought a congressman sensibility. Um, you know, he was a transactional president um, who, who I think was suspicious of the uses to which the word vision had been put uh, in in recent years, um, he thought vision. He you know his vision of government was suspicious of visionaries, and um, in any event, it, it's it's just part of um, a much more complex, uh, I would argue, much more dramatic uh, in the best sense of the word, um, and much more significant uh, story than what we have generally been told. Another fascinating aspect of President Ford's legacy that your outstanding book, An Ordinary Man, lays out so well is the evolution of his relationship, first rivalry all the way to cooperation, then ultimately friendship with Jimmy Carter. They came off one of the yeah. toughest, closest races in American oh, yeah. history, two very different people. They each yeah. were... Uh, in effect, wounded or defeated by Ronald Reagan, they each saw right. themselves as uh, a bit of a, a a bit of an exception to the kinds of presidents we were used to. Yet somehow and those two ended true. up together. Tell us about yeah. that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's true. There's no doubt. By the end of the '76 campaign, as I suspect is true of all political rivals, you know, these two men um, had worked up a pretty healthy disregard. Uh, for one another. And although during the Carter presidency, Ford, um, F Carter credited Ford with persuading enough Republicans to vote for the Panama Canal treaties, something which, by the way, again, um, Ford was on the verge of accomplishing and actually had put on the back burner because of the Reagan challenge. Uh, but nevertheless, although Ford uh, would provide assistance to Carter whenever asked, uh, there was no personal relationship really to speak of between the two men. Then Anwar Sadat was assassinated. And because Reagan himself couldn't go, uh, they sent Nixon, Ford, and Carter, which was a brilliant idea. On the way back, Nixon was gone. He'd gone off on an itinerary of his own. And Ford and Carter found themselves in this 
in Air Force One for a long flight back to Washington. And something clicked. They decided to put aside their past differences. And they discovered how much they had in common. They, they, their values were very similar. They were both products of a very distinct place on the map and the culture that it represented. They had both really come of age in the Navy. Um, they were both accustomed to very strong women, strong mothers and strong wives. Um, and they even they had they had three sons and a daughter on whom they doted. And before they landed in Washington, uh, also Ford was able to tell Carter at that point, Ford had actually built his presidential library and museum. Uh, and, uh, you know, in those days, presidents left office and the first thing they were told to their astonishment and dismay was, oh, and by the way, you know, you got to raise in Ford's case, it was around 15 million Carter's probably $20 million to build a presidential library. So they had a lot to talk about. They found they had a lot in common. And you mentioned Reagan. I'm personally convinced the cement on that relationship, what bonded that friendship was the fact that they had a shared enmity. And they had both run against Ronald Reagan, and they both resented Ronald Reagan uh, in, in, in ways that I think probably neither man ever fully got over. Uh, so anyway, so this laid the groundwork. And then it turned out they, they agreed to do events at each other's libraries. Um, they co-chaired something called um, the American Agenda in 1988, which was almost akin to a new Hoover Commission, basically drawing up uh, an agenda for the new president, whoever that might be, in January 1989. Later on, after the 2000 election, uh, the disputed election, they did a commission on election reform. Uh, and frankly, they, they proposed a number of, of, of ideas that we're still debating today, like making Election Day a national holiday and, and giving convicted felons back uh, their right to vote. You know, et cetera, et cetera. So they did um, they did substantive things together. But you're right uh, behind that, this this improbable friendship uh, akin to Adams and Jefferson in their later days. The wives became very close. The families became close. They, they the, the two presidents had an unspoken agreement. Whichever one outlasted the other, outlived the other, would eulogize uh, his friend at his funeral, which is exactly what happened uh, in, uh, in 2007 here in Grand Rapids when uh, Jimmy Carter eulogized Gerald Ford. Um, it, it really is a remarkable story. And you're right, it, like so much about this story, it's a chapter that, um, you know, surprises people and a chapter that is particularly relevant because the Ford-Carter friendship, unlikely as it might have appeared in 1976, would be duplicated and is, you know, by the um, um, Bush-Clinton, actually, which then became Bush-Clinton-Bush, a friendship that uh, remains very intact to, to this day. And it, what it, one it raises, yes. mm -hmm. No, no, it just, it raises, it raises the, uh, the age-old question, um, at least that kept coming back to me as I, as I was writing about Ford's post White House years is, you know, why is it that we only have elder statesmen? 
It's a great question to reflect on for all of us. And of course, one might also say, unless it's going too far, but it doesn't seem to be, that for all the improbability of the Ford and Carter presidencies, and at times the delay of recognition of many of their accomplishments because they were unusual personalities in the Oval Office, yet the two of them really set a standard for the post-presidency that had not existed before that time. Well, and then again, they're, they're very different. I mean, Ford took a heat for either monetizing, you know, commercializing, or, or for not being as active, you know, as Jimmy Carter. Well, the fact is, people don't change. We like to think that they do. But you, for example, you knew that Richard Nixon, with every breath he had, as long as he had breath, was going to be invested in, you know, winning a, a, a place for himself among the movers and shakers, to be an influencer, to use a modern phrase. And he was going to speak out on for, he was going to write books, he was going to do whatever it took to, to regain, you know, uh, his standing uh, and, to, and to shape uh, the making of history. Well, Gerald Ford, you know, good old Jerry from Capitol Hill days, who spent 200 nights a year on the rubber chicken circuit, you know, trying to get Republicans elected so he could achieve his life's goal to be Speaker of the House. Um, well, guess what? You know, that man was still there. Um, interesting enough, he didn't go on a single corporate board until 1980, when he became clear to his that, that his political career was over, that Ronald Reagan w- would be the Republican nominee. And only after 1980, um, you know, did this lifelong champion of free enterprise, uh, you know, go on on several boards. And he, he took some heat for that. He took some heat for uh, doing paid speeches. Well, of course, it it ballooned um, to the point where, well, the numbers today are are absurd. But uh, but but he what he also raised tens of millions of dollars for charity. He did a huge fundraising campaign for his alma mater, the University of Michigan, uh, and and a whole host of other. He also, by the way, most of his speaking fees went to the Ford Foundation to pay for the library and the museum uh, built here in in Michigan. So, you know, as usual, there's there's a whole lot of story behind the the public story. Um, And Bill Clinton would tell you that Ford was absolutely essential in getting NAFTA passed the North American Free Trade Agreement. Um, again, as he had been uh, during the Carter presidency, you know, and then and then one story that, again, nobody knows about, um, was Ford's behind the scene role, pivotal role, in averting an even worse, uh, arguably, um, national crisis surrounding the whole Monica Lewinsky uh, scandal and the and the Republican effort to impeach and remove Clinton from from office. I mean, I won't bore you with the details, but it is a fascinating behind the scenes story of Ford in a bipartisan way, um, in effect coming to Clinton's rescue uh, within within limits, and it's the rescue and the limits together that that make the story.
You were very close to President Ford in his later years, and you're a highly acclaimed historian of American presidents. And you and Henry Kissinger, if memory serves, were eulogists chosen by the Fords at his funeral. How do you think he would like for us to think about him today? And how do you think we should think about him today? Well, as I said, I think he um, he was asked this. He said he thought he hoped that people would think of him as a friend who tried to make government work on their behalf. Now, that sounds like a, a, a modest uh, assessment, a modest a goal, if you will. But if you stop to think about it, I remember one of the interviews I did about 170 interviews for this book. And one of the best was with. Uh, Rod Hills, not a well-known name, married to Carla Hills, who was Ford's HUD secretary, and a really, really impressive guy who uh, was the sort of the brains behind the deregulation effort. Later, Ford made him head of the Securities and Exchange Committee. And Hills said something really, I think, profound, in some ways obvious, but profound. He said, the older I get and the more you know, I'm around government, the more it, it, it stands to reason that the first and over, overriding task of any president, indeed any executive, is to make government work. Uh, if, if you fail at that, then it seems to me nothing else um, you know, can, can um, come to your rescue. Um, you, 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 and, and, and then I think it's even more, you think back to the 70s a time of pervasive and understandable mistrust um, toward government in a bipartisan way and across the age spectrum. Um, the fact that when Ford left office, at least a little of that mistrust had been dispelled. And, and I think even people, it was interesting to look at the poll numbers, even people who didn't vote for Ford in 76, credit him with with personal integrity and that i think he would you know want to be his his historical legacy um i think though one quote sums it up better than anything else that makes him incredibly relevant to what we're all going through right now and have been going through for the last decade or more in 1980 he was interviewed by a trusted journalist who twisted the question that's usually asked and said, Mr. President, could you identify a disqualifying personal attribute for the presidency? Not, you know, what are the qualities that a president needs, but what is it in a president's character that that disqualifies him from the office? And Ford thought, he said, arrogance. And then he, he said, not that the American people would ever knowingly elect an arrogant president, and then he qualified by said by saying, "I'm talking vicious arrogance." He said, "Then God help the country." Now, and I leave it to listeners to interpret that as they will. But it seems to me, wherever you are on the on the political spectrum, uh, vicious arrogance, or even less than vicious arrogance, remains a disqualifying attribute. And, and yet by no means one that we have, we have rid ourselves of. Thank you, Richard Norton Smith. 
our historian of the American presidency, author of the outstanding new book, Ordinary Man, The Surprising Life and Historical Presidency of Gerald R. Ford. Where should people go to follow you and follow you and your work? Oh, gosh. Well, you see, you know, I am a troglodyte. I, I don't do social media. <laughs> um, I don't, you know, I, I don't know what an app is. I'm having trouble understanding the difference between analog and digital. So uh, it's, you know, uh, but there is, I'm told, a richardnortonsmith.net that if, you know, people for any reason want to send a message, including a complaint uh, after listening to this uh, program, uh, they, they can... Uh, uh, they can do so, and eventually it, it somehow finds its way to me. Well, let me step into the uh, modest assistance for 21st century leaders of our timeless American historians, because a quick Google search will stir up lots and lots of great information. Amazon carries your highly acclaimed and delightful books, and YouTube includes many of your presentations, especially on uh, C-SPAN, and as well as tremendous presentations before audiences such as presidential libraries. So there's a treasure trove that you leave for all of us. So, Richard, thank you again for being with us. Oh, no. Hey, Jim. Thank you, as always. Thank you for your interest. And thanks you to our listeners for being with us. Please send me ideas for future guests and topics, and follow us on Twitter at James Strock, and connect via our website, Serve to Lead or subscribe at Substack. Until next time, take care, be strong, and serve to lead. These are not dark days. These are great days. The greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.